to the message today. We have an opportunity to do something we do from time to time when someone finishes the membership process. Um, as we have uh, in the past voted in new members, we've done it either in the context of the end of a meeting. Today, I just, in light of our observance of the Lord's table, I thought it'd be better to do it uh, during our service here. So uh, I think everyone has met Alice Hargrove. She introduced herself to us during our fellowship last week, and I'm sure you've met her. Um, but we have uh, an opportunity, of course, to, to vote on uh, her membership. She has gone through the membership class, and uh, Pastor John and I were able to hear her testimony of salvation and baptism by immersion after her salvation. She has uh, agreed to the Constitution and the Statement of Beliefs of our church and has agreed to follow leadership in the spirit of Hebrews 13, uh, 17. So I just want to uh, present uh, her to you, and I would like to ask for a motion to receive Alice into our membership from a voting member. All right, Brother Jerry, and then a second, Brother Mike Flesser. Um, as we uh, pursue this process, any concerns that uh, anyone might have, um, we do it a week apart so that anyone in the intervening time can express concern either to the person or to myself, and uh, there's no, according to our constitution, public discussion of a candidate. And of course, I, I have not heard anything, Alice, and we're just so thankful for, for you. But uh, I would like to just call for a vote. All in favor, if you're a voting member of Fallsbury and Bible Church, if you're in favor of receiving Alice into our membership, please say aye. All opposed, say no. All right, the vote is unanimous in receiving. Alice into the membership of our church. And we want to take some time to certainly greet you. Um, and I hope after the service, you'll maybe you can just stay put where you are. We'll have an opportunity to come and give you the right hand of fellowship. But welcome, Alice. Just want to have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into the word this morning. Lord, it's a blessing to be able to see your work in our lives. And thank you for Alice, and thank you for your work in her life. Uh, to bring her to this point in time and this place and a place where she can fellowship with us and use her gifts and also, Lord, be be encouraged and blessed in her Christian walk. And I pray that today uh, she would rejoice in not only your goodness, but in being officially a part of this family. Thank you that she has been faithful. And even before she's joined today, she's been feeding on the word of God and ministering to others and just ask, Lord, that uh, you would fit her uh, to us and us to her, that you might encourage her walk and ours. And we just thank you for your goodness today. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. And begin reading in verse 21, Matthew 18, we'll read down through the end of the chapter. The scripture says, then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to, up to 70 times seven. 
For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. But since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, Pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord, moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. May the Lord bless the reading of his word to our hearts. As you look around in the church, there's not a one of us who is not infected by sin and touched by sin. Every one of us is a fallen and sinful person. To think otherwise is to think wrongly. It's inconsistent with God's word. Many scriptures could be quoted. We know them. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But if God's grace has come into someone's life, there should be a change. The power of sin is broken. I no longer have to serve sin. We can, and of course we choose to because of indwelling sin. But when someone comes to faith in Christ, forgiveness has been granted. The Holy Spirit is within. The Holy Spirit is changing and has made things new. Paul, of course, speaks about indwelling sin in Romans 7 and describes in his own life that there were good things that he wanted to do that he didn't do and evil things that he didn't want to do that he practiced. And he said, if I'm doing the very thing that I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me, I find then that the principle or then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. And so there's a reality, and of course, the New Testament speaks of it and guides us as we think about it. There's just a reality of sin, but there's also the hope of forgiveness, not only in our relationship with God, but with one another. That when God forgives us of our sin, we also can then forgive one another. The placing of this parable 
is no accident in Matthew's arrangement. Of course, Jesus is the one teaching, but as Matthew arranged this sequence, he is talking about, the Lord is talking about the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has taken a child and drawn attention to the character of that child as being humbly trustful or one who lives in trustful humility. And Jesus describes his disciples as being those who are humbly trustful. And that's all of the disciples, every single one from what we might look at and say one of the strongest down to the weakest. Everyone is a little one. And all of Christ's disciples are to be like this child. And Christ's disciples are to take care not to offend or despise a little one, a fellow disciple. Jesus has warned the seriousness of offending a little one. He spoke of a heavy millstone being hung around someone's neck and being drowned in the depths of the sea as being better than offending one of these little ones. And so we are to take care to not offend a little one of brother or sister in Christ or despise them because God does not despise them. And if one of them should wander away, God, of course, as shepherd, sends his children after them and he delights when that sheep is found. He rejoices. God's people, if their heart is right, rejoice as well. In addition to his teaching about going after the wandering one, there's also the matter of sin between brother and brother, and by extension, of course, brother and sister, sister and sister. Jesus is teaching how to go about the process if someone has sinned against you and has not repented. And that's what we looked at the last time we came to this chapter. But Peter had a question. You can see that in verse 21. And his question had to do with, well, how many times is there a limit at which I stop forgiving that I cease forgiveness? Or is there some kind of great sin? You might imagine him thinking certainly other passages of Scripture deal with that. The scripture is sufficient as it gives us instruction about these matters. But here it's how many times? How many times? And in Jesus' instruction, he gives him an answer, and then he gives him a parable to illustrate the nature of God's forgiveness of us and then our forgiveness of one another. And the parable As someone described parables as a mirror and then a window, Warren Wearsby said a parable is a picture that becomes a mirror and then a window. And then he says we gaze at the scene in the parable and we see ourselves and then we see the truth. I thought that was a helpful way of stating what this parable does. It does help us to see ourselves or to at least consider ourselves, examine ourselves. Before we get to the parable, let's look briefly at Peter's question and Jesus' answer. His question 
is, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Jesus has been talking in verse 15 about sins between believers. And Peter suggests what some would say is rather generous, seven times. And he is talking about sin. He's talking about missing the mark, but this is actually not only missing the mark of God's standard for righteousness and sinning against God, but that sin is also directed towards a fellow believer. And this may be a question for us today. How many times do I have to forgive or should I forgive this person who has sinned against me? And I don't believe we're dealing with something that is uncommon to us. We all live in relationships, whether it's in our home, or our workplace, certainly within the church, interaction with other believers, and we get sinned against. We live in a sinful world. Paul speaks about that in Romans 1, where he talks about a world when it is depraved and given over to its own thinking that's filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And while that's a description of the world and its sinfulness and a depraved mind, we understand that just because we've come to Christ doesn't mean we're perfect. We still sin. We still sin against each other. Has someone said something hateful to you? Has someone deceived you? Has someone gossiped or slandered you? Has someone broken your trust? Has someone been unloving or mistreated you? How often should you forgive that? Peter's estimate is seven times. That's a lot of times. Where did Peter come up with that number? It's not clear in the context that he was drawing that from anything that Jesus had taught to this point. Some suggest that he has in mind advancing upon the teaching of the rabbis. It was said by some rabbis that you were to forgive a person three times, but not a fourth, based upon the teaching of Amos, where the Lord says for three transgressions of Israel, yes, for four, I will not reverse it, the punishment that was coming to them. They referenced another text as well. But if you look at Amos and what God is saying through that prophet, he was actually talking about nations. You read Amos 1, he's talking about Syria, Philistia, Tyre, Ammon, Moab, Judah, and Israel in chapter 2. So he's talking about nations, and he's talking about not reversing the judgment that's coming to them because of sin that had been perpetuated and continued, and they were unrepentant. The context here, I believe what Peter's actually saying is that there is repentance on the part of the one who's coming and asking for forgiveness. There, there is none. And Peter's estimate is generous. I mean, seven times. It's more than the the rabbis. More than one might think that someone would repeatedly sin seven times, maybe even in the same way, and come back and ask for forgiveness and forgiveness be granted. I think what Peter says here is something we all struggle with when we're sinned against repeatedly. 
when is this truly genuine repentance on the part of the other person if it's a repeated continual sin? It's something we wrestle with, but Jesus, in his response to Peter, gave him a picture of forgiveness that is consistent with what the Bible teaches about God's forgiveness. Jesus' response in verse 21 was, I do not say to you up to seven times. In other words, that's not the right answer, Peter. It's actually 70 times seven. And someone might say, oh, well, that's a lot more. And I don't know if that is how much that person sinned against me, but I, I, I can write down the number of times they've already sinned and I'll just start keeping count up to 490. Is that, is that the point that Jesus is making? Of course not. No, Jesus obliterates Peter's suggestion and he uses that 70 times 7 to show that really we are to continue to forgive, repeatedly forgive those who sinned against us and who ask for forgiveness. And there's repentance. I think the principle here is we ought to continually and completely forgive our brothers and sisters in Christ when they sin against us and come to us and ask us for forgiveness. And that's the transaction. Remember, forgiveness is that transaction where if you've sinned against someone, you go to them, you confess your sin. Or if they've sinned against you, Jesus has given instruction in verses 15 through 20 as to how to handle that. And if someone else needs to be involved in that process, that's what Jesus is teaching there in verses 15 through 20. But here in Peter's question, Jesus is just showing him the limits of forgiveness, really, that you just keep on forgiving. Because when you keep on forgiving, it's like God. Now, I'd just ask you before we get into the parable, are you having trouble with forgiving someone? Because we are sinners and we're not like God, we do have trouble with this. Don't we? And yet Jesus is giving instruction to his disciples and indicating by his instructions that it is possible for us to do this. But we need his help. But it's possible. Maybe you're on the other side of the equation where you're the one who's doing the sinning. And I'd ask the question, are you repeatedly sinning against someone? And you're, by your actions of repeatedly sinning, you're putting them in this situation where it's making it more and more difficult for them to forgive because they're, they're struggling in their heart. J.C. Ryle said, what a happy world it would be if this rule of our Lord's was more known and better obeyed. How many of miseries of mankind are occasioned by disputes, quarrels, lawsuits, and an obstinate tenacity about what men call their rights? How many of them might be altogether avoided if men were more willing to forgive and more desirous of peace? Let us never forget that a fire can not go on burning without fuel, just in the same way it takes two to quarrel. And if you're repeatedly sinning against someone and giving them the challenge of forgiving you, I want to call you to repent. 
Stop sinning against your brother or sister in Christ. And on the other side, I want to encourage you to look at what Christ is saying here, both in his answer to Peter, but also in the parable. That someone who claims to be forgiven and is truly forgiven is forgiving. That is their character. That's how they live their life. That's what God gives them the strength to do and the ability to do. And you might say, well, I can't forgive. I won't forgive. That's not a Christian attitude. That's not, that's not what Christ is teaching. Now, you might be at that point in your Christian life, but that's not where you ought to be. And I would call you to turn from that sin today and repent. Jesus connects this question and the previous teaching with this parable. Notice he says in verse 23, for this reason. So he's most definitely connecting this parable with what he has just said in the teaching of this chapter. And I wrestled with telling this story and describing the story and making application in the midst of it. And so I hope you'll be patient with me. I'm going to trust that you have read the story. We read the story and that you're familiar with the teaching. And if I make application in the middle, I hope you'll understand that I'm trying to both explain, but also apply as we go through this. And I trust that you have some knowledge of it, but if you don't have any knowledge of it, I hope that the Lord will still give you instruction as we go through this. For this reason, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. What does forgiveness look like? Well, here's a picture of the kingdom of heaven. If you're a part of the kingdom of heaven, this is what forgiveness looks like. There's a king who has servants, and there's an accounting day. Our actions have consequences. There's actually an accounting for what we do. And in the case of this king, as he settles his accounts, he has one slave who, as the details are read of what this slave owes to the king, it becomes apparent that there's an enormous sum that must be paid back. If you read that in verse 24, in the process of this settlement, an amount is specified. It says, when he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. You might see in the margin, at least in my Bible, it says a talent is worth more than 15 years' wages of a laborer. And how many talents are there? 10,000 talents? So... We're talking about how much time to be able to repay. It's more than his lifetime or many lifetimes would be if he worked for his entire life and beyond. If you look up that word talent in scripture, you find it in different contexts and different types of talents. There's talents of gold or talents of silver. A talent during, I understand, during the Second Temple period would be about 75 pounds. So if that's gold, that's a lot of money. In one of the 
passages in the Chronicles, it speaks of a king who hired 100,000 men for 100 talents of silver. 100,000 men for 100 talents. So how much are we talking about? It's enough to hire a 10 million man army. Impossible to repay. But that's how much he owes. And whether it's through, it doesn't say, Jesus doesn't describe the context. It's, it's a loan. It seems like it'd be too much to be a loan. Is this embezzlement? It doesn't make sense if it's in terms of a debt. And one way or another, he owes the king that much. And let's remember, it's a parable. It's meant to convey a point. And it seems obvious, verse 25, based upon that information, he did not have the means to repay. He just doesn't have the ability to get that back to the king. He's a slave anyway. And so what is the response of the king to a servant who owes that much but cannot pay back? Verse 25 says, since he did not have the means to repay, his Lord, notice this, commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. See, you can't avoid this payment. It's required. It's a debt that you owe the king, and there has to be consequences. What would you do if you found yourself in such a circumstance? Not only do you have to be sold into slavery, but so does your wife and your children, and everything you have has to be sold. That's what it says in verse 25, all that he had so that repayment could be made. I mean, it's the end of life as you know it, not only for you, but for your whole family. Any possession you ever gained is gone, and that's it. And you either submit to that and you go and you live with that, or you do what this slave did in verse 26. He pleaded for mercy and patience. Verse 26, it says, so... In light of his circumstance, he makes an appeal to the king. He humbly, or at least apparently humbly, falls to the ground, bows before the king, and pleads with him. With what what one person called bombast. Like, this is not even reasonable that he would make this claim or make this petition. But verse 26, his request is, have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. How in the world is he going to do that? It seems like an empty claim in and of itself. But as he makes that claim and he's bowing in the presence of his king and he pleads for that, pleads for patience, here's the heart of the king. The heart of the king, verse 27, is the Lord of that slave felt compassion. Whatever it was in the heart of that king in the story here, there is mercy for misery that this man is heading towards. And instead of enforcing what was obviously required or should have been required, the Lord, the king who had the right, could do what he did. He released him. He was moved in his looking at this misery and decided to just not only release him from any slavery, but notice the end of the verse, verse 27, he forgave him the debt. An enormous 
debt just forgiven. You don't have to pay it back. Obviously, as Jesus goes on, there's a picture here in this parable of God. There's a picture here of our sin, which is a debt. Jesus spoke of sin in terms of debt. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us. And I just want to encourage you to see in the heart of this king, there's something here for us to remember about God, that God is a God of compassion. He is, Ephesians 3, 4, rich in mercy. He is, as he told Moses, as he declared his glory, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Now, there's a cost, obviously, when we think about the gospel. Jesus Christ had to give his life in payment for that debt. In the story, we don't see that drawn out, but most certainly when God shows mercy, he also has to be just. Those verses in Exodus go on to say he will by by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren of the third and fourth generations, God has to punish sin. But praise the Lord, through the gospel, we understand that God can grant us mercy and also remain just as he punishes our sin in Christ, who took our place as an innocent sufferer, a vicarious sufferer. But the reason Jesus did that is because that compassion is in the heart of Jesus, and that compassion is in the heart of God, the Father. Certainly in the heart of the Spirit, as well as he pours out that love of God in our hearts. You look through the Gospels and you see Jesus having compassion upon sinners, upon those who are blind, upon those who are filled with leprosy, for his hungry disciples who are listening to him, for the widow who had lost her son. Jesus' heart of compassion came out many different times, and it was a demonstration to us that God the Son came to earth and showed compassion, and he is like the Father, and the Father has that same compassion. And he looks at sinners, and he sees that misery. And by his grace and mercy, he alleviates it. There's a complete forgiveness of this debt. If you've ever had debt forgiven, if someone just says, don't worry about it, you don't owe me, I forgive you, you understand there's a release. But when it's this big, when it's that enormous, when it is life-altering and life-changing, you have the certain expectation of doom, and now you're free? The debt is gone? What a wonderful thing. And as you think about your salvation, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, that is a wonderful truth that when you receive Jesus Christ and you believe on him, that your debt is forgiven. Your debt of sin against God. Now, it'd be wonderful if the the parable stopped there, wouldn't it? Just understand something about the forgiveness of God. But in the context here, this is really a parable, not just about the king, but it's a parable about, about this servant. This is sometimes called the parable of the unmerciful servant. 
It's a parable about forgiveness or the lack thereof. Because transition contrast in verse 28, after having received that forgiveness of that debt that he could not repay, if he tried, many lifetimes, he then goes out, verse 28, and finds someone who owes him much less. And look at how he treats him. Verse 28, but that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii. You might see in the margin that word denarii or denarius, a denarius was a day's wages. So this is a hundred days wages. If a person worked at minimum wage for a normal day, you're talking about $8,000. It's, it's a sizable amount of money. I'm talking in current terms. You're talking about a sizable amount of money, but compared to what he for, was forgiven, someone said it's, it's like peanuts compared to zillions. And look at what he does. Look at how he treats his fellow slave. It says that what slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. Or one person translated it, pay whatever it is you owe. A paraphrase is, he grabbed him by the throat and he demanded instant payment. Give it to me now. And it's really that action that is alarming in light of what we just read about what the king did for him. At least if he understands what the king did for him. Jesus, of course, is drawing out the character of this one who had been forgiven. In spite of the kindness and compassion and mercy of the king, this servant didn't learn anything. I mean, you have to wonder, does he, did he really think about what took place? Does he understand or know? There's nothing of the compassion or sympathy. Instead, there's just anger and the attempted use of force to extract this small debt from his fellow slave. Now. Even his fellow slave is going to have a response to that. Look at verse 29. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, Have patience with me. Where have we heard that before? And I will repay you. There's a slight difference in what is said here. I don't believe there's any real significant differences other than it actually seems reasonable that this fellow slave could do what he's saying he would do. If you just have patience with me, I'll repay you. He's making a promise that seems reasonable. But this slave who had been forgiven by the king, notice his response, verse 30, he was unwilling. He refused to be patient. He refused to give him any time to be able to, to pay. It says he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. And you might ask the question, well, how's he going to do it? Well, he's in prison. I don't know. Maybe someone else is going to alleviate his 
situation. But the point is here that this slave who is unwilling to forgive this debt, his character is being shown in the light of the forgiveness that he was given. There is nothing of the generosity of the king. There's nothing of the compassion of the king. There's nothing of the willingness to treat others as he himself had been treated. There's just anger and insistence that his fellow slave pay him according to what is owed. Now, if you've ever seen unforgiveness, I believe verse 31 is is your experience if you know God. Because there were those who were looking on, verse 31, who says, it says, when, so when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, this wasn't done in a corner. It was done in the view of his fellow slaves. His fellow slaves saw what had happened in the first place and how much he was forgiven, but then also saw the way that he treated his fellow slave. And for that reason, there's deep grief, sorrow sadness, that there wasn't in the heart of that slave anything resembling the heart of the king who had forgiven him. In the light of what happened, not only are they grieved, but they went and reported. They went and told the king, it wasn't out of desire to get this servant in trouble, but just the reality, the shocking reality of this slave's actions towards his fellow slave that they went and told the king. Verse 31, at the end of the verse, it says they came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Now, how is the king going to think about what has happened? And again, in the story, of course, there's a picture here of God. It says, then summoning him, In light of his actions towards his fellow servant, verse 32, his Lord said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. What this man had done to his fellow slave, in spite of the fact that his fellow slave had genuinely owed him something. Hear me. His fellow slave genuinely owed him something. This this passage, this parable does not minimize the reality of sin. What this fellow slave did is recognized also as a debt. You understand what I'm saying? So this man, as he leaves the king and comes and sees this fellow slave or finds this fellow slave, he's coming to someone, if we look at the parallel, as someone who has genuinely sinned against them. We're not trying to minimize that. Sometimes Christians do sin grievously against their fellow Christian. But we have to remember the bigger point, and that is the comparison between what they have done to me and what I have done in my relationship to God. It would be a frightening thing if God would just reveal to us how much we actually sin against him. The enormity of that. 
God does reveal it to us. He uses his word to instruct us, to guide us. And over time in our Christian life, as you see things in your life, you're repenting, I hope, and turning from sin, and God shows you something else. And over time, through your life, you're being sanctified. Maybe it's the same thing from time to time, but God is at work, and he not only corrects our actions, but he shows us that our sin is not only external, it's internal. It's not just in action, it's attitude. You can have sinful thoughts, sinful motives. But the king's expectation is that as he treats us, we then would take from what he has done with us and apply that in our relationship with others, in the context here, particularly with those who have sinned against us. Brother or sister. The king says, you wicked slave. This is bad. It's sinful. It's evil. That he would not forgive this debt in light of what he had been forgiven. Notice his expectation is expressed in verse 33. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? I think it's important to say here that that's what God expects of all of his people. that you be a forgiving person. That that mercy and grace that has been shown to you, that is greater than anything that you've ever done or someone else has done to you, that in light of that, what he has done for you, that that would start to be in your life. You would start to see the the greatness of God's mercy and that you would start to exercise that mercy towards others. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Our forgiveness is a reflection of God's. And since his slave didn't, since this is what this slave's character was, since he did not exercise mercy or patience, since instead of mercy, he actually was trying to extract the debt from his fellow servant. Here was the response of the Lord. And this is his judgment. And his judgment is meant to teach us something like God. Here's his judgment, verse 34. His Lord, notice this, moved with anger. God is angry. Moved with anger handed him over to the torturers until he should repay should repay all that was owed him now you could say based on the teaching of scripture anger in and of itself is not wrong this is indignation it is righteous indignation it's not a sin to be angry per se it's a sin to sin while you're angry, to be so intoxicated by your anger. Yes, there is such a thing as sinful anger. You get displeased and you 
harm others with your words or your actions. Yes, that's a sin, but God can be angry and not sin. The psalmist said God is a righteous judge, a God who has indignation every day. Jeremiah said the Lord is the true God. He's the living God and the everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation. A lack of forgiveness brings the anger, the displeasure, the strong displeasure of God. One of the sins mentioned in Romans 1 is someone who is unmerciful. And that's exactly what this slave was with his fellow slave. He was not merciful. Now, I just ask you in application, is there anyone to whom you would refuse to show mercy? Is there anyone to whom you would refuse to forgive? I remember asking someone that, and they had been sinned against grievously. And the first response was, it's not fair for you to ask me that. It's not fair for you to ask if I'd forgive. The scriptures teach us we must forgive. Now, sin can be aggravated against me. That sin, if it is to be forgiven, needs to be repented of. And there needs to be that transaction where the person says, will you forgive me? And the ball is now in your court and you say, yes, I will forgive you. But is there anyone in that context who would come to you and you would say, I will not forgive you? Notice here and and be warned because the instruction that's given here by Jesus in verse 35 is, is frightening. It's terrible. Look at the rest of verse 34. His Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. Now, again, remember up to verse 34, this is a parable. The word torturer can just simply mean jailer. So let's not get wrong impressions about God. Someone who would torture someone or or handle them in what you might imagine torture to be in an unjust way, that would be sinful. But there is proper punishment for sin. That proper punishment for sin, as we see elsewhere in Scripture, is upon judgment casting a person into an eternal lake of fire. You might say, well, that's torturous. Well, what did that person do to deserve that? And if we look at what Scripture teaches, they offended Almighty God. They sinned against the Holy God of heaven, the Creator, the Maker of all things. To sin against Him must be a serious thing. And to to continue in that sin and to fail to repent of that sin and to defy that one who has made us, yes, it is proper for him to deal in judgment. And I would just say this, whatever the meaning of that term is, I want you to notice how this slave treated his fellow slave. Go back. What did he do? He End of verse 28, seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. And then he required him to go into prison until he should pay back. 
there is a parallel between what he has done with his fellow slave and the judgment he eventually receives himself. God is a God of justice. He rewards according to justice. He doesn't give more back than a person deserves. In fact, he gives a person according to their deeds. And Jesus said, Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you switch that around, what would you have to say? That the ones who are unmerciful are cursed, and they will not receive mercy. And notice Jesus' teaching here, verse 35, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. What did he say as he taught his disciples to pray? Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who are indebted to us, or forgive us our transgressions as we forgive those who have transgressed against us. And in Matthew chapter 6, let's turn over there. What Jesus says and teaches here in Matthew 18 is consistent with what he said back in Matthew chapter 6. The request in the prayer is found in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Verse 14, for if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying that God won't forgive you if you don't forgive other people. And in the case of Matthew chapter 18, what is happening in the life of that slave who's not understanding forgiveness and treating the forgiveness of the king and treating his fellow servant in the way that he does, he's, he's actually exhibiting the fact that he doesn't really know or understand the mercy of the king. And ultimately, that's a picture of someone who doesn't understand or know the mercy of God. Am I saying the person is not saved? That's what I'm saying. That's exactly what I'm saying. Now, can a Christian struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness and malice and clamor, which Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 4, which is shouting? Is there, is there ever that kind of interaction between believers and those people truly be believers? I think it's possible. Paul wouldn't have confronted it if it wasn't. But in that same passage where he's talking about that kind of activity, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Along with your desire to harm or bring pain to someone else. We're not to return evil for evil. The way to overcome evil is not with more evil. The way to overcome evil is with good. That's why Paul said, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other. Just as God in Christ 
also has forgiven you. I really doubt if we're thinking Christians, perhaps you claim to be a Christian and you're hearing this message and you're doubting now. I don't know that a message like this, a passage like this, a parable like this could could leave us untouched in some way. Because we live in a sinful world. We've all been sinned against. But it is a matter of how we're handling that now. It is a matter of how we're really understanding the forgiveness of God to us. So let's think a little bit about the forgiveness of God to us. How does he forgive us? Well, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. He's cast our iniquities into the depths of the sea. Now, God can't forget, but he chooses not to remember. But when he does that, when he casts our sins into the depths of the deepest sea, or he removes them from us as far as the east is from the west, on what basis does he do that? Well, it's certainly because of Christ. It's also because we've come to him and we've asked him for forgiveness. And that in and of itself is a work of grace in our hearts that we would come to him and ask him for forgiveness. But what's his disposition when we do? Grudging? Okay, I'll forgive you. No, that's not our God. He's full of compassion. He's ready to forgive. He delights in mercy. So you may need to just come to the Lord today and seek his forgiveness. It may be someone else in your life where there needs to be reconciliation. Who is it? I really have to call God to witness that this, this text of Scripture has been proclaimed in this place at this time with all of you. We are responsible, is what I'm trying to say, and God knows that. You can't dismiss. You can dismiss me. I don't think you could dismiss someone who is seeking to obey the Lord in their office as pastor, but you can't dismiss God's word. He who turns his ear away from hearing the law, the proverb says, even his prayer will be an abomination. It'll be a disgusting thing. Because what you're doing is you're saying, I'm not going to listen. And if that person who says, I'm not going to listen, then tries to talk to God when God has spoken to that person. Should God listen? Well, he'll certainly listen to a prayer of repentance. But not pride. 
He's not going to prosper those who continue in pride and try to cover. I just want to call you today to give heed to what God has said and ask the Lord to help you apply it in your life. Let's pray. Father, we trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. We believe that he is present in the world to convince of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. We do believe that he is present in the heart of every one of your children to urge them to obey you. And so we trust today that by your word, you will work in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you that you're a loving, gracious, patient, tender God. That you are ready to forgive that you're the one who initiated reconciliation, even when we were still dead in our trespasses and sins and sinners before you. What amazing mercy. And we pray even today that we would be melted by that mercy. That whatever pride and impenitence we may have in our hearts, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, come to you and seek your forgiveness for what we have done. And if we need to deal with our sin with someone else, oh Lord, give us the heart to, give us a heart to repent. And we ask for your help. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen.